And so when I'm beginning training with a dog, one of the key pieces that I want to do in the beginning is develop a relationship with the dog. There's a diagnostic phase. Uh, for those of you that are professional pet dog trainers, right? This is the phase that gets shortcut a lot. You're going to hear me talk about what I consider to be ideal dog training, right? I'm a kind of little bit of a proselytizer, as it were, for uh, what I consider the ideal dog training, and then the compromised version that we are frequently put in, in, in front was put in front of us, right? So one of the issues that those of you that are professionals un understand is that you frequently have to shortcut certain things. There are compromises inherent in working with companion dogs and their owners, people who are not professional dog trainers and trying to help them be better, and there are certain shortcuts that have to be taken, right? There's just no fans or butts about it. Training a dog the way I would train my own dog takes a lot of time. There's a lot of detail. There's a huge amount of effort that's put into that. And your average person isn't likely to do that. Doesn't mean the same principles don't apply, but they're less likely to be able to do that or be willing to do that or definitely willing to pay you to do that, right? So there's going to be time frames that are kind of arbitrary that are based on finances and things like that, right? And so one of the key areas that people tend in, that, that are put under time crunches, have a tendency to shortcut, is the relationship building phase, right? This early stuff. And for me, before I actually start trying to get dogs to do things, I want to understand that dog. I want that dog to know me. I want that dog ideally to like me, hopefully, right? And so depending on that dog's temperament, that relationship building phase can be relatively brief. We have very gregarious dogs that like everybody and are right away like, hey, new person, you're great, let's do some stuff. I get a pretty good read on them relatively quickly and we can proceed more quickly with that dog. Other dogs, especially dogs that have anxiety-related problems, aggression problems, any of those sorts of things, this can be an extended phase, right? And before I start trying to fix problems with those dogs, I need to develop a good solid relationship. And in that relationship building, that dog comes to trust me, hopefully, knows who I am. This is especially important with aggression and anxiety problems, right? That that dog trusts you and recognizes you, right? The dogs, I always say relationship blocks aggression, right? And if I take a dog that doesn't know me and start doing stuff to it, a dog of a certain temperament is much more likely to bite you. There's a reason that your dog doesn't bite you but might bite a stranger that came in your house or grabbed him, right? So that familiarity and that relationship helps limit the chances that I get bit, but also it limits the amount of stress the dog's under. When a dog begins to know you and trust you, they'll accept physical manipulations and things from you that they would not accept from a stranger. And it's very stressful. Well, if, you, if somebody comes up to you and you don't know them and they're physically invading your personal space, that's stressful for a bit. You're not like, hey, is this okay? Is this not okay, right? And so there's gonna be a period where you're gonna be a little anxious on an edge. There are chemicals that are dumped in your body when you're anxious that make it harder to learn, that make you more likely to be reactive, all kinds of things like that. So we cannot overemphasize the importance of relationship, and especially with the dogs that are the difficult type dogs, right? And so I'm gonna spend, ideally, as much time as necessary to kind of get to know the dog and get them comfortable with me. Also embedded in this relationship building portion of the work is the early diagnostics, the things that I need to figure out what makes this dog tick, right? And so I wanna see things about this dog's thresholds. Uh, you're gonna hear me talk a fair bit as we go along, especially tomorrow when we get into leash reactivity, about what I call thresholds. And thresholds are how easy or hard is it 
to get a reaction from a dog in a certain aspect of its personality. So we can talk about thresholds for a lot of different aspects of a dog's personality. Um, we could say a dog has a low or high threshold for predatory stimulation. And a dog with a low threshold for predatory stimulation wants to chase anything that moves. It takes a very little amount of motion to activate that dog's desire to chase. Right? You could have a dog with a high threshold for predatory stimulation, meaning it takes a lot to get them to want to chase something. Right? I could talk about a dog's thresholds for environmental sensitivity, a dog that notices new places or changes in surfaces or noises or things like that would be a low threshold dog. And a dog that's sort of oblivious to new environments and things going on around them would be a higher threshold dog, right? We could talk about a dog's thresholds for defensive stimulation. A dog that is a low threshold for defensive stimulation perceives threat really easily. Somebody walks up and they're wearing a hat and the sunglasses and your dog thinks that guy's a serial killer, right? Another dog, I'm staring at them and going like I want to hit them and they're wagging their tail, like, so that dog has a high threshold. I'm actually threatening them and they don't notice the threat, right? And so you'll have dogs that have a wide range and thresholds are not absolute, they're not set in stone, but it gives me an idea of where the dog's coming from. And a dog's thresholds also don't say anything about how strong their reactions are going to be. So I could have a low threshold dog that has weak reactions, and I could have a high threshold dog that has weak or strong reactions, and vice versa, right? And then you have dogs that land somewhere in the middle, like most dogs. You, don't have, you have extremely low threshold dogs that are reacting all the time, and you have high, high threshold dogs that are almost oblivious to things, and everything in between. Thresholds also are modified through training. Like when we diagnose a dog and we're deciding how we want to work with that dog in the beginning, I'm evaluating at a moment in time. What we do as dog trainers will ultimately change a dog's thresholds if we do it well, hopefully, right? And so if we didn't, if you couldn't, if a dog genetically was what a dog was the day they were born, then three quarters of what we do would be a waste of time, right? So we know we can obviously make changes in a dog's personality through experience, right? It's always an interaction between genetics and environment. And so what happens to that dog over time will change their thresholds, right? So, but when I'm starting with a new dog in this relationship building phase, I'm paying attention to my dog. I'm getting to know them, as it were. I'm watching what they pay attention to. I'm getting a read on how energetic they are. I'm getting a read on how motivated they are. I'm experimenting with different types of rewards. Do they like to eat? Do they like to play, right? Do they like physical interaction? If I touch them, do they get stiff? Are they loose and wiggly? Are they submissive? Are they rigid? Are they pushy? Like, all those different things are all information that's going to help steer me as I train, right? And I want to have a plan when I go in with a dog. I don't want to just jump in there and start going, well, let's make you do stuff, right? And so this relationship building is also my time to, uh, to get to know the dog and to diagnose them, figure out what makes them tick, what they like and don't like, so that I can make a forward plan for them. The other thing that I want to look at in those early stages is the dog's state of fitness and health and things like that, right? So this is one thing that we can tend to shortcut. If I'm dealing with companion dogs, for instance, many companion dogs come in for training overweight. We talk about this all the time, right? We're going to talk a lot about reward-based training over the course of the, the weekend, right? So when we start training, primarily we're using rewards to manipulate dogs, right? This isn't necessarily the only way to approach it, but it's the way that we approach it. And so that dog has to want something from me, 
in order for me to begin to teach them to do things. And food is one of the things that we use most frequently. So a dog that's carrying extra weight appears less food motivated. It frequently happens. All you professional pet dog trainers out there know somebody brings you a dog that's 20 pounds overweight and they say, my dog doesn't like food. And I'm like, yeah, your dog does. <laughs> He's just getting a little too much of it, right? And so that will be something that's a part of my, I may not be able to start meaningful training with the dog until I get their weight down to an appropriate amount. And you don't do that, for instance, by starving a dog. You don't just cut their food off and say like, oh, I'll, I'll starve you for a little bit. They should lose weight the way we should lose weight, right? Incrementally, increase their exercise, reduce their intake. So it may take me a period of time to get the dog down to an appropriate weight so they're healthy and ready to work with. And so some of these things may all defer the actual process of creating behavior. Right?